0: Welcome to the Coach's Edge podcast dedicated to teaching, sharing, and learning the game. I'm your host, Steve Kramer, and on this episode, we have head women's basketball coach Brittany Zanstra join the show. She talks about building an ideal style of play, one that fits both the coaching personality as well as the needs of the players. She's had a successful playing career, both at the high school level, winning a state title. She holds numerous records as a player while she was playing for Hope College. And now she's taken over as the head women's basketball coach. You're going to enjoy this episode and take a lot from it. Let's get to it. Before we get into our interview, we'd like to thank our sponsor for this episode, Richardson Automotive of Standish and Gladwin, serving mid-Michigan and the Thumb with their big three automotive needs. They have a wide range of products from Chevy, Buick, Ford, Chrysler, Jeep, Dodge, and Ram. They also have a large selection of pre-owned vehicles with one of the largest selections of trucks in the state they are sure to fit your needs. Standish and Gladwin, our truck country, stop in and see them today and I can tell you from first-hand experience they will get you right. When I lived in Ohio, I still went all the way up to Standish because I knew they were going to take care of me when it came to getting a new vehicle. Richardson Automotive of Standish and Gladwin, they are all about service. We'd like to welcome head women's basketball coach of Olivet College, Brittany Zanstra to the Coach's Edge podcast. Coach, thanks for joining us and taking the time.
1: Yeah, Steve, thanks for having me tonight.
0: We're excited to, to have you on uh, with, with your experience, both as a coach and as a really successful player. So but before we get into it, you know, let's get into, What's some of your, your background, your history? You know, how did you get into coaching and especially coaching so quickly right after playing your basketball, college basketball at Hope College, having such a successful playing career there?
1: Um, well, yeah, so I played four years at Hope um, for one of the best ever do it, Brian Morehouse. Um, I don't think he really needs to, you don't even have to say a bio for him. Everybody in Michigan knows who he is and around the country. Um, so I was fortunate to have a great playing career for him, um, and our team had a lot of su- success at Hope. Um, and I think anybody knows when you you have good team success and good player success, kind of sets you up for um, some of those connections that help in the coaching world. Um, there's no hiding that you get to you know build a pretty good network. Um, so I actually majored in business management at Hope, and. When I graduated, I had no idea I wanted to go into coaching. Um, I went into an office job after graduation, uh, but I just really missed the game. Um, you know, I didn't I didn't realize how much that it'd be a part of me still. So, I called uh, Coach Morehouse, and he let me come on as a volunteer assistant in 2016 um, for that season. Uh, and as always, he had a successful year coaching there. So I got to be a part of another uh, Sweet 16 run team. Um, And then the following season, the full-time position at Olivet opened up, um, and Zach Ingalls hired me as his full-time assistant. Um, He was the head coach at the time, um, so I was really fortunate that he took me on. Um, So I was an assistant there for two seasons, uh, and then last March, I was hired as the head coach. So here we are with that.
0: That's pretty awesome, and Zach's a a friend of mine. It It was a good hire by Zach. I played basketball. Uh, with and against him actually in Slovakia. That's kind of funny. Small. Oh, that's crazy. Very, I mean, very talk small about,
1: Talk about good shooters. Uh, more
0: than yes. the best
1: in Michigan, too.
0: Yes. Yeah, you two uh, walking into the gym, um, you know, that was a question. What What's it like walking into a gym and knowing you're the best shooter, you know, pretty <laughs> much every time you walk in?
1: Oh, I'm super washed up now, but um, don't tell my players that. I still like to think that I can beat them at any shooting contest, but
0: yeah. 50, no, 51% uh, for one of your seasons leading the NCAA is uh, very impressive. I thought I could shoot, but that's that's insane. So that's pretty yeah, awesome. That was a wild um, season. <laughs> so, as a, as a head coach now, you get ownership of kind of deciding what that style of play is going to be like for your team. You get more decisions as far as the recruiting and, and the personnel. And so, now being a, a head coach, how do you decide between your ideal style of play and making sure that that style of play fits the personnel that you have?
1: So it's twofold. Um, obviously at the college level, you're a recruiter. So the first thing I want to do is I want to try and find players that fit what I want to do. Um, in our, in our league, in the MIAA, the women's side, um, we're pretty much all recruiting the same, the same kids and the same type of kids. We want long kids. We want long guards. Um, You know, it's no different than recruiting D one or D two. You still want all that length when you're playing basketball, you want athleticism. Um, And sometimes at D three, you, you know, you'll get players who have a really high basketball IQ um, are long, but they might not have the athleticism or sometimes things like that. So, you know you're recruiting that style um but generally when i'm you know deciding an ideal style play i'm going to go with i want to have my best five players on the court at all times um especially with we're kind of in a rebuild at all so um we do want our you know our top scorers our top um players whether they're five guards or two posts three guards things like that so um well first things first. I'm of the mindset that to be elite at our level, um, especially in the MIAA, uh, if you can't play great half-court defense, man-to-man, you're really not going to be competitive for a championship there. Um, To put that in perspective, the the current top two teams in our league are top five in the entire country in defense. So um, there's no doubt about it. I want us to always be defensive-focused, which is kind of funny because if anybody who knows me um, saw me as a player, they would definitely not peg me as a defensive person. Um, <laughs> but Cully Carlson who taught our defense and, you know, ran a lot of our defenses at Hope, um, I really bought into the system he had and, um, I really believe in how they did it at Hope. Um, but with that being said, I don't have, um, the Hope personnel right now. I don't have that same length of players. So, um, we've kind of gone into a gap defense type of defense. So, um, has a similar principles in that I always want high ball pressure um, at all times I always want good guards pressuring the ball Um, you have to be elite communicators on defense Um, if you can't communicate you can't play I'd say that's offensively and defensively for us Um, and then lastly you have to have elite help side So really in the gap deep more than anything is you're constantly in that help position. You don't, you don't even want them to think about going into the paint. You don't want them to think about going baseline. Um,
0: So are you playing kind of true pack line or is it kind of a variation off of that?
1: um, I would say that the help side's pack line, but the ball pressure is higher than pack line.
0: Okay. Okay. Um, If that
1: makes sense. So. I, I had Cassidy Williams um, as my assistant coach this past season, and she played at Trine. Um, so she won three MIAA championships there uh, the past four years that she was there um, and they pay, played the gap defense. So she really took the charge for us this season. Um, I'm kind of like Mo where he kind of is the offensive coach and he had Cully as the defensive coach. Um, that's kind of what Cassidy and I did this this season is I really let her dive in and, you know, be the, the ringleader on teaching the gap that they played at Trine. Um, and Trine's one of the teams that was top two, top five in the country in defense.
0: Right, so. right. Um, so, so the high ball pressure, I mean, you're really, really heating up the ball, even more so than a pack line. You, know, okay. you mentioned the importance of the communication, and then obviously great help side. And then you've know, you put an assistant coach in in charge of taking the lead. On on defense. So, with with that in mind, year to year, like th- there's there's some consistency. You're recruiting the the players to come in, trying to make sure that you're fitting the personnel. Do you f- feel like there's more changes on the offensive side or the defensive side at the college level from year to year?
1: Um, absolutely, the offensive side for us. Um, you know, I can't speak for everybody, but defensively you know, I'm, I'm of the mindset that if you want to be an elite defensive program, that's, that's not a one-year system. Um, When you're, you're talking the best programs, that's, that's four-year players that are leading that defensive system. So um, even though I, you know, I love the hope style gap is really what we're, you know, we did last year. We're going to do it next year and we'll do it the year after because you want that four-year cycle of players. So now my seniors are teaching my young kids, um the defense and now they're making new mistakes they're not making the same mistakes and it's you know it's like second nature to them so definitely defense stays pretty consistent um all the way through for it to get to that level it needs to be um i mean you're seeing big differences from uh october when we start the defense to january to the end of season to the next year with our players so um but offensively uh you know, I I have a base recipe for what I want. Um, You know, I always want to have, you know, I want to have a a structured base offense. I want a free-flowing offense, and then I want our sets um, each season. But what that looks like kind of varies depending on what skill level we have um, for our offensive kids. You know, I mentioned, you know, my best five players are five guards, there's a good chance I'm not going to be doing a bunch of sideline ball screens with that unit. Um, I'm probably going to spread them out, let them uh, try and extend other teams' big man and, you know, let them play more free flow. Um, You know, if I have two big, big solid post players, then I'll probably go a little more structured and go into more screening and um, doing options like that.
0: So with all those variations in mind, based on your personnel. First off, I love the thing that you said. You said new mistakes, not the same mistakes. I think that's right. huge for any team that's trying to develop and improve year after year. Is that, of course, we're all going to make mistakes, but they can't be the same ones. We have to be learning. We have to be growing. Uh, that's that's a golden nugget that you just dropped. Now, with with the offensive set, you, you started to get into some details there. Yeah, how do you decide? you know, what that offense is going to look like each year. So there's going to be some changes. But also, what are some of those things that you want to make sure are consistent year in and year out, regardless of your offensive personnel?
1: Um, well, I'm I'm pretty detail-oriented about the game. Um, I definitely I like things done the right way. So um, if we are going to do a sideline ball screen offense, um, I want the details of it right. I want my post players to – do the right footwork, open up to off of the screen. I want my guards to wait for the screen. Um, hesitations like that. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm super detail oriented when we do do an offense. And I, I want movement. I don't like people standing still. Um, ideally, because our team is so good at, or our league is so good at getting, you know, scouting reports done and scouting teams. I'd love to just always have a, a free flow offense a motion offense that can't be scouted um, but that's not always the case you know sometimes I get a team that that really needs all the reads done for them so in that case um, I, was, I always have sets um, that's one thing we had at Hope we had probably 100 different sets at any given time um, honestly which is hilarious and thanks to Mo that was really fun my freshman year trying to learn everything um, but if I need, if I have a team who needs that structure, then I'm probably calling a lot more sets. I'm probably making the reads for them a little bit more, um, making them have to think a little bit less on the floor themselves. Um, so yeah, does that answer it?
0: Yeah, I and you you've mentioned a few times. No, that's that's good. Keep keep going. You've mentioned a few times ball screens within your offense. Have you noticed any changes or more teams? using the offense, as far as ball screens, as far as it being more effective now than it has been in the past? or being used differently than it has in the past?
1: Um, so I would say it's definitely being used more than I had ever seen it in the past. Um, and maybe that's just because I'm more aware of it and more intentional studying the game than I was as a player. Um, <laughs> but I think you turn on the TV and you watch any collegiate game, there's gonna be some sort of sideline ball screen offense. Um, every program's running it, whether it's their main offense or not, they're, they're hitting it at times. So, you know, I love, you know, I think all the training that kids do are, are great. And, you know, they're dribbling and their cone drills and stuff are awesome. And they're, they're refining those skills. But I think one of the most underrated things in training is just playing basketball a little bit and playing the two-man game. Um, I think the two-man game, if you do it right, it's hard to ever defend, Um, you know. So I think it's more effective in the sense that the game is a lot easier to study now. So you can really study how to come off of those screens. We have access to the craziest amount of film you could ever imagine. Um, I can watch every clip of my girl going over her right shoulder if she's a post player from every game we've had. So you can just really break it down. And to me, that makes it easier because, you know, as a player for me, when I'm in a two-man game, granted, I had an All-American post player who was, you know, caught anything I threw to her and made every read. But um, I would study what my defender was like in a team that I'd play against. So, you know, if they went under the screen, I was obviously going to light it. If they, if they uh, hard hedged it, then that was an easy slip to our post player, things like that. So um, for me, I just think with the access you have to film, it makes it easier to be a great offensive player.
0: So how much time I love the two, the ball screen something that I wish was utilized more when I was playing but you know I'm not as, I'm not as young as you are but um it seems like it's always been effective when you know you break it down like you just did when players are able to make reads instead of have a predetermined decision, how much time do you spend doing, you know, like small sided games in practice or encouraging your players to play, you know, just two on two or three on three?
1: Um, well, I wish that we did even more than we do, but um, anytime that we break down into player development at practice, which we'll do every single practice, um, we'll do it in, in, some, in some form. Um, even if we're breaking down guards and post, we'll have our guards pretend to be the post and do that two-man game. Just to get used to making those reads, Uh, and for some kids, they've never had to do it in their high school level. They were just more athletic and could just get to the rim. Um, So learning how to actually read what your defender's giving you is something that will, you know, you break down and you break down until it becomes muscle memory. So um, Mm -hmm. definitely every single practice you want to do it. And then Cassidy was awesome this season for us. She uh, she worked with our girls all the time um, when they didn't have class and had them come in and during season and would work those two main games and isolated skill development. So I just think it's so important just to just to get that feel for it. Um, even just the timing of a pass when you're coming around a hedge or the timing on a slip. Um, you know, it's not a normal chess pass. You know, it has to be a little finesse to it with some with some heat too. So
0: and I, I love the fact that you mentioned when you're doing those player development drills. You're having the the guards also set the screens as well, which that's something that I found benefit with my training as well as, you know, I'll have the point guards be the big and set the ball screen and go post up and get a post rep in, even if they're not going to post up in a game, because I want them to know what it feels like to be in that space to get a better idea of what pass makes sense, given the situation. So they might be the, the you know, five feet tall setting that screen and rolling to the basket and making a post move. But in a sense, I want them to do that because I know that's going to make them a better passer on the other end when they're handling the ball.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, just just knowing what that's like and knowing, you know, catching it uh with, with this much heat is not that great or things like that, getting a feel for the space for sure. Um, and honestly, in our league, we do have point guards who – Post up and and do things like that. And like I said, if we're running a, a five guard offense, there's a chance that they're going to be guarded by post players anyway. So going into that as a screener is um, you know is possible because we might be trying to expose their post player um, on defense. So I think anytime you can round out your game and and experience all the positions is you know you you benefit from it as a player.
0: Absolutely. Now, when we were emailing back and forth, you mentioned various horn set, sets within your offense. Yeah, how do you find that horn sets have been difficult to guard at the college level or any level in general? They're they're really common, but it doesn't seem like there's a stop to it. Teams continue to use horn set.
1: Yeah, I, I love the horn series. Um, I mean, we ran it at Hope. Uh, you know, I've added some different things from what we did at Hope, but you'll see everybody doing it because number one, the horn series spread you out. So anytime you're spreading out in basketball is uh, you know, it's good for the offense. It's, you know, it's tough to cover all that ground as a defender. So, you know, that leaves a lot of space for good read and react options. Um, And then I think it's a great set that allows you to counter if a team scouts it. So, um, so let's say a team jumps the high screen uh, in the horn series. Well, then your post can slip it. If they decide to flat it, then your guard should probably be attacking and finishing or attacking kick out. Um, Let's say out of that, which we run all the time, we want to do a double screen away for a shooter. So now the defense has to decide, are they gonna tag my shooter? Are they gonna bump my shooter by the post player up top? You know, what are they gonna do? They tag her, obvious curl. If they don't tag her and they try to bump, then my post player should be slipping. if they don't bump her, then a lot, of which a lot of teams don't bump, and they try to go up the middle, then we pretty much almost always get a three-point shot out of it, which is hilarious. And because it is, you could scout it, and I know other coaches have scouted it because they're screaming shooters coming off, and you know we'll still get that three. So just having all of those counters, it makes it a little less scoutable because you just always have a read off of it, no matter what the defense has decided that the way they want to guard it there's always a counter to it
0: now just out of curiosity do you like to put your primary say ball handler as as at the top coming off of a horn set do you like to have that be more of a shooter since hopefully they're going to get loosened up by the ball screen anyway do you have specific spots that you like you know those especially those three perimeter players on or do you like them all to be interchangeable and to be able to play each of those different spots spacing out throughout the court?
1: Um, The only one that I generally only, you know, want in one specific spot is if we have a pretty um, elite shooter, I'll generally have them in that shooter position um, just so even if we're not running it for the shooter, uh, it it keeps the defense honest in that spot um, when we do decide to do that double away. But yeah, it would be great if I could have my point guard be, you know, a good shooter, but generally when with the team and personnel, we have um, that top spot who's taking it off the ball screen is usually going to be our best attacker. Um, so I, and rarely do we actually attack off the horns. It's usually for a different read. Um, but like I said, I want to keep the defense honest. I want it to be somebody who is capable of getting downhill so that, you know, their person doesn't, um, doesn't sag or do something like that. So
0: that makes sense. That makes sense. So keeping on the ball screen train here, you you've mentioned the sideline ball screen as well. You know, what are some of the things that you try to teach your players and how to utilize a ball screen? And I'm somewhat partial to this conversation because as a former point guard, the ball screen was one of my favorite aspects of the game.
1: I'm uh, the exact same way um, the, the ball screen was definitely my bread and butter as a player um, and it's where I got probably 90% of my my threes out of um, which you probably wouldn't think of that as like a three-point shooters uh, specialty or what they liked but I loved it because I I was the type of player who I really sat and waited for the ball screen um, when my and I try to preach that to my players I just feel like Kids want to go, 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 and get downhill. But if you wait for that screen, um, that's when you can really read the defense and, and see what they're going to do. So um, so when I'm teaching ball screens, number one, my guards have to wait for the screen um, because otherwise it really is worthless. Um, and then number two, their first option should always be for them to go score. Um, if the defense is hedging out hard, obviously – yeah, I'm going to have my post player either slip or do a quick roll or quick pop, but my guards should still do a hesitation dribble um, and be able to read if, you know, if they hesitate, they know they can get downhill. Um, And then secondly, you know, it's always uh, score first if you can, and then you're reading it out of that, so.
0: When uh, I was playing at Hope, we put in a horn set, Going into the NCAA tournament, we'd never ran it before. And I was playing two for the majority of the season. They decided to put me at the one when we were running our horn set. And those were the biggest keys and why, you know, we went to the lead eight and lost by a couple points. We played terrible in the first half.
1: Was that, Pre- was that 06 you know, or 08? Uh,
0: that was 07. 07 we made it to the lead eight, lost by a couple points. Could have easily made it to the final four. Won oh, an ad- yeah. we should have won national title in my opinion but hey hey i had uh, that same
1: experience i feel you same yeah. elite eight
0: loss <laughs> yeah it hurts it all. so that's the thing about the ncaa tournament is you know you don't need to play bad for long and the season can be over Ugh. and that was the story of that last game was we we had a bad let me say i had a bad first half and we lost that game by a few points um but that we put in a horn horn set, which we hadn't been putting in all season. And they put me at the top and it wouldn't have worked well, except I was a scorer. So right. when I came off and if, if they sagged or didn't have a hand in my face, I just shot it. And then when they started, uh, you know, hard hedge or try to double, then we had other guys that could could shoot it out of it or make the, you know, the next pass, you know, a lot of times it's not that first pass, but it's the one after that that gets it done. So we had guys that, that could do that. And so that's a big part of uh, being a good ball screen player is being aggressive. And I think um, that's something that I often, you know, don't see among high school players. They might have a ball screen within their offense. It might be a ball screen within the motion they're they're running, but they're just doing it because that's what they're supposed to do instead of hunting, you know, hunting for, for that score. And even if they don't get it, they're going to contract the defense and you can share the sugar and somebody else can, can right. let it fly or make that next pass. That's, that's key. Um, so at the, at the college level, you're re- recruiting your players. You uh, have an idea of what you want to do An identity defensively. There's a little bit more change offensively. Um, obviously, we've talked about some of the, the ball screens that go into it. Now, can you speak on the scouting aspect a little bit more what are some of those things that you look for when you're scouting the opponent getting ready for that next game
1: yeah um I mean everything really uh not to be like super dramatic but if a team does it in a game as a coaching staff we we try to scout it so um every detail we can find as a staff we try to now saying that that's I don't give my players all of that. Um, Some of that is for our coaching staff. um, But defensively when we scout, um, and I'll just go over some things that we do because this is probably something that I could rant about. Um, I've been watching film since I was a freshman in high school with my high school coach. Um, So I'm a super film junkie. And I was not super athletic as a player. So anywhere that I could get, an edge I tried to and film was one of those ways so um, but anyway defensively when we scout the other team um, we're obviously going to look at you know what is their main defense is it half court do they full court man are they zone? do they press um, how are they going to play ball screens are they going to hedge them are they going to switch guard to guard post to post are they going to go under screens um, and then what type of possessions um, might they might they change their defense on um, some teams in our league, you know, they might throw one-two-two uh, press after any make they have against us or, you know, things like that. Um, and then as a coaching staff, we'll try and look at um, what do they do after timeouts? Do they change their D? Um, what do they do late game? Do they stay the same? Um, but like I said, that's more for the coaching staff and things that we can evaluate once we get down, if it's a close game. Um, and then offensively, um, We'll try and find all of their main offenses sets, sideline out of bounds, baseline out of bounds. Um, And we'll give our our kids the scouting reports with, you know, their top run sets and then their main base offenses, Um, as well as a breakdown of stats and tendencies of each player that the other team has. So um, with our particular team, we don't try to, team I have now, we don't really try to bog them down with too much information. So generally I'll try and give them a lot of player tendencies since we'll, we'll keep our defensive principles game to game, typically pretty much the same. Um, if there's a team with an elite scorer, we may adjust in that case. Like, you know, this girl's, you know, an elite three point shooter. If we go under screens, this game, we're not, you have to go fight over. So little adjustments like that, but, um, our league of coaches are so good that if you don't scout, you're going to get burned. Um, either they'll completely find a way to shut you down on offense or they'll score at the other end at will. Um, Cause they, I mean, everybody in our league is scouting well, so we kind of have to be prepared for everything they've done in previous games.
0: So I like that you talked about, you know, the scouting report that you give to the players, because as, as coaches, you're doing a ton of scouting, a ton of research, but it's not about what you know during the game. It's about what can you relay to their players so that they can apply it within the heat of the moment that's great that's great stuff now obviously the MIAA is one of the toughest if not the toughest uh girls basketball conference in the country what are some things uh that makes that league so tough and what are some things that teams do in that league that make them so hard to guard
1: yeah I mean like I said before we have a lot of really good coaches in our league um I mean, Mo, he's got, I think he's the fastest coach to 600 wins, um, in any division, which is crazy, um, ring at Trine, he's had super great success, especially as of late, you know, they've won three or four MIAA championships in the past five years, um, Doreen at Albion, she's one of the best, uh, one of the best scout scouting coaches you'll see. I mean, she always knows what's happening, what the other team's running, um, everything they know. So, one, the coaching depth in our league is so good. They, it's just coaches who are dedicated to the game and dedicated to studying the game. They don't just show up. They, they really put in the work. And then, the next level is our league has a lot of really good players. Um, we have some high academic institutions, and it, it attracts. Smart athletes, smart, um, smart high IQ players. So, um, when you look at the rosters of kids, you're not seeing a bunch of five three guards at the Division three level um, in our league. You're seeing a lot of five eight, five nine, five ten guards, um, five eleven wings, um, six three post players, six two post players. So, uh, I mean, if you have size, I mean, you can't teach size. So. Um no matter what you do, if you're going against a six three and you're a team full of a bunch of five two uh, your night's probably gonna be a little rough so we just uh, the players are great um, they're athletic and a lot of the players in our league have had scholarship offers um, any i mean you look down the roster of any team and you know all those kids have n a i a or d two and um, even in some cases d one scholarship offers so um you have a lot of good basketball players choosing to go to high academic institutions and um, choosing to get a well-rounded experience.
0: That's great. Playing high-level basketball, getting your education. I know we'll talk at the end of this podcast a little bit of, you know, why D3 can be such a great route for uh, the student athlete. But before that, what, what are some things that uh, players seem to be doing well at that small college level that gives them success compared to maybe playing at a higher level or compared to having success at the high school level, but it not translating to that next level of college basketball?
1: Yeah, I think I think ultimately um, these kids are just choosing the right fit for them. Um, it's the right style of play. It's the right um, competitive level for those kids. Um, and like I said, a lot of the players in our league have a really high basketball IQ. Um, and, you know, I think the biggest difference between a D1, you know, D1 players to D3 is is really comes down to athleticism. Um, we don't have the same athletes as D1. That's the reality. I mean, you turn on UConn, that's obviously the highest of high, but just their body type, the way they move, it's different. Um, and there's just no way around that. So. I think that we have, um, I think the edge really comes with these players is that um, even though there's not the same level as the D1 athleticism, there is the same basketball IQ, there is the same skill set, there is the same skill level, great elite shooters, um, great players, but they're just at the right level, the right fit for their body and the um, the way they can compete against each other, if that makes sense.
0: No, that makes that makes perfect sense. And you know, you're also a testament as a as a player was I tell a lot of uh, coaches that you know if if you're watching a D three game, the skill set oftentimes is even higher. Now you're talking UConn, obviously that's the highest of the right. high, but if you're talking, you know, an average division one team, I would say the skill level at a uh, high level division three team is higher and the shooting is is certainly higher. You're a testament to that. You're <laughs> breaking, you know, I think you have four shooting records. Yeah, I hope they're still saying um you know the the shooting at that level is just phenomenal. That's one of the reasons that players can play at the next okay. level, moving on from high school because they may not have the size, they may not have the speed and athleticism that you talked about uh to go on and play you know at the division one level or at the division two level, but they have these other characteristics that have allowed them to be successful from you know that skill standpoint from the i q standpoint that certainly goes a long way to having the game to be successful is there is there anything else that um we haven't covered as far as building your style of play that you you know we failed to mention or that i failed to to ask you about in this episode
1: um not that i can think of i mean really there's just the you know the foundations that you want and then you just kind of tweak Tweak those as you get the players. Um, I, I didn't really emphasize it, but uh, as much. But I'm really big on communication, um, and like I said, that's defensive and offensively. Um, when I'm recruiting, I don't I don't want a kid who's silent on the floor. I don't I don't want a bunch of kids who are timid. Um, you know, I want some players who will get after it, have a little. I mean, lack of a better word, kind of swag to their game. Um, and if you look at our team, we have I our roster this past season had a lot of those, you know, edgier type of players. Um, and I like that. I like a team who will be a little blue collar, get down and um, and play hard. So um, I always want that on my team. It's a lot easier. You know, I, I know basketball, I can teach X's and O's. I can teach defense, but it gets really exhausting if you're constantly having to teach effort and grind and communication. Um, those are kind of some intangibles that I want from recruits when I'm out watching
0: and recruiting. I love that. So coach, honestly, it sounds like when you're looking to fill uh, a role or or build your players, they got to have what I call three C's or my three C's at least, but you basically uh, said them in a few different ways was you got to have some confidence, right? Some swag about yourself, right? You got to, you know, sometimes you got to think that you're better than you actually are. If you want to play at a high level, you have to have competence, which you've talked about the IQ, like you got to have players that have a high IQ, if you want to play at the college level. And then the third C that I have is communicate, you want to have those athletes that are out there talking on the court. You don't want any of those players that are just kind of, you know, look like they're sorry, feeling sorry for themselves, keeping to themselves. You got to have confidence. You got to have competence and you need to communicate at a high level if you want to be successful. So that's really, that's really great stuff. So as a division three college coach, what are some of the benefits of being a student athlete at that level? And you can speak to it both as a coach and as a player.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm biased because it has been my you know entire journey, but I love everything about D3, um, to be honest, you know, I was one of those players who did have some offers out of high school. Now I recognize that at those places I would have just been a specialty player. So I would have come in to hit shots and that was about it because I could not defend at that level. Um, but I fell in love with hope and I fell in love with that D3 lifestyle. Um, I would say the number one thing with D3 is the balance. Um, we have you from October to February or March if you're elite and and that's the only mandatory time we have and then you really get to be a student you know Um, you get to have a social life you get to invest in other passions Um, you know a lot of our girls they have the opportunity to take internships in the summer because they're not tied down to um, a bunch of training or coming back early to campus. Um, So. I just loved that there was a good balance. Um, I love basketball and I I wanted to play it all the time, but I didn't always want to play it um, for anything more than pleasure sometimes. Um, And just having that where the spring was really our time to just play pickup, the spring and fall was our time to just play basketball and have fun with it. And then, all right, October hit, now it's it's business and we're all about it. so just that balance of my social life, my academic life, and my basketball life fit me really perfectly. Um, and I, I love that, especially, you know, um, in the MIAA, it is high academic. Um, we take a lot of pride at Division Three too. It is um, student athlete, it is student focused. Um, you look at all the teams across our league, most of them average 3.5 GPAs as an entire roster, um, if not better. Um, and that's huge, uh, I, I think that's super important because at the end of the day, 99% of us are not going on to play professionally. Um, on the woman's side, we're going into careers. So sets you up to invest in your career and invest in that side of your life.
0: Absolutely, it prepares you for that, that next stage. Uh, a friend of mine in college went immediately to get his master's after going to Hope and he said, my master's degree at this other school wasn't any different than my undergrad at Hope. You know, I felt like Hope right. prepared him that well uh, to, get, to get his master's at the next level. Um, so, Coach, there's always people in our lives that have kind of helped shape and mold us into who we are. And I know you, you've mentioned Coach Morehouse, but who are some of those people in your life that have made an impact on you? that you hope to kind of pay it forward moving on in your coaching career?
1: Oh man. Yeah, one hundred percent Mo and Cully from Hope, Hope's coaching staff. Um <laughs> I would say that I was probably a little bit of a diamond in the rough. Um and I was I was rough in college. Uh I had my edges to me and you know, Mo and Collie, they really they found a way to love me through it in college. Um, even when it didn't benefit them on the court. Uh, I actually didn't play my sophomore year of college. I quit basketball and I just took the year to get my life together a little bit. And Mo still had meetings with me in his office every few weeks. Um, Coley gave me some tough love uh, the following season when I came back, you know, he didn't, uh, he didn't let it, let me off the hook for not playing the year before and, it was just what I needed as a player and um, really that's why I wanted to coach is I basketball gave me so much it it carried me through a lot of um, some of my dark dark times in college and it pulled me through you know some difficulties I had and you know those two mentors really stood by me and you know I hope I can be that for um, for my own players if they're going through something Uh, because basketball really is reflective of life I mean the challenges, the, you know, the ups and downs of it. Um, it. I just want to have a, be able to be a mentor and help kids through those same things. So those same hills and valleys that I went through. That's
0: awesome. That, that's fantastic. So with, with that in mind, and you've talked about some of those rough patches or anything else as, as a player coming up, what's the biggest advice that you would give to your younger self, as you're getting into your coaching career?
1: Well, I'll say two things. Um, one, don't be such a jerk and think you know everything in college. <laughs> oh my, like, honestly, bless Mo's heart, bless his wife's heart. Um, they're both the best people ever, but I was such a pain in his butt. I'm telling you, um, you you know, a lot less than you think you do. Um, and you don't really get to reflect on that until you're out of it. And I've had the, you know, the benefit of now that I'm a coach and I see players do some of the things that I did and I'm just like, Oh my gosh, I just want to kick you off the team right now. And then I got to give you grace just like Mo gave me. So, um, I, I just, yeah, I definitely, I wish that I knew just how hard it is and just how much Mo really did care back then. And, um, you don't really know everything when you're in college. Uh, the second piece of advice I would get, um, 100% I would tell myself to go get my master's degree right after I graduated from Hope. Um, I didn't really know about GA positions when I was in college, and I think it is so huge. I I try to encourage all my players when they talk to me about what they want to do as the next step. I try to encourage them, go look for a GA position, Um, go get your master's degree paid for, get it done now. It's a lot harder to go back to school, um, and it's even harder to have to pay for more school. So... um, so I strongly encourage kids to look for that um, whether they want to be a coach or not um, it's just a really great opportunity to move forward I'm working on my master's degree now but it's a lot harder to write a 14 page paper when I'm 22 than it is at 28 my motivation just doesn't seem to be the same so
0: so don't be a jerk and if you <laughs> want to go into coaching in especially uh, get your master's degree like you said you can get it paid for that's a great route to go uh coaching wise and it's going to set you up well even if you're not going into to coaching after so that is that is some some great advice um and
1: I, would, I would add um and Collie Carlton really encouraged me to do this uh another, another the other nice thing about being GA is you're experiencing a whole whole nother type of program a whole other coach um so you just get a more well-rounded coaching experience, um, and outlook, you know, I knew hope for six years in a row, um, and that's all I knew until I got to Olivet, and then I got to experience a new program, um, I think it's really important as coaches that, to learn other, um, learn other, uh, programs, learn other systems, see what you like, see what doesn't work, see what doesn't fit with your mentality, um, so doing that GA spot, you, you get opened up to a, a broader experience for
0: a coach coach, i want I want to commend you. I want to thank you for being on the coach's edge podcast. you know I always say you can use basketball or you can let it use you. and uh, right. you know you' you're using basketball to make a positive impact in the lives of others. You're using it uh, for for a job. It's something that you're you're passionate about. you're a you're a student of the game, I can tell just by this short interview. I'm excited to continue to follow your your coaching career um, and all the things that you've accomplished so far. Um, and I know with with your background and your hunger to continue to improve and, and get better, I'm excited to follow all of that basketball and and be rooting for them uh, this year and not just Hope basketball. Um, so
1: great, no comments.
0: Thanks again for thanks again for being on the Coach's Edge podcast. Thank all of you for listening. Uh, if you enjoyed our podcast, we'd love you to leave a, a rating and a review as we continue to strive, get better as we share, teach, and learn a game. Thanks again, and get after it today.